0: You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Welcome to the fourth season of the Dramatist Guild presents Talk Back. I'm your host, Christine Toy Johnson. We've shifted our focus this year to talk about craft and inspiration. Our guests this season are my colleagues and friends from the Council of the Dramatist Guild of America. Over the next six episodes, our guests will give us a unique look into how they write, what makes a good story, and what drives them to keep working on the DG Council. Stay with us. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at amfam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit mfm.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. Welcome back to Talk Back. In our first episode, I sit down with the vice president of the Dramatist Guild, Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, while he's on set for his upcoming FX television show, Kindred. An adaptation of the Octavia Butler novel of the same name. Brandon has made his career in community with other writers. We'll talk about his passion for fair and equitable treatment of writers and his passion for R.L. Stein. I'm so excited to welcome the Vice President of the Dramatists Guild Council, Mr. Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. Can you please introduce yourself to our listeners?
1: Yes, my name is Brandon Jacobs Jenkins. I'm a playwright and educator, and sometimes television writer, sometimes other kinds of writers. And I'm calling or I'm speaking to you now from the middle of a trailer in the hills of Atlanta where it is boiling hot. And that's the story of my life today.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. This season is all about inspiration and craft. And I know that means many different things to many different people. And I wanted to start with asking you you're such a prolific writer. How did it all begin for you? What inspired you to start writing?
1: It's so flattering and fraudulent for you to call me prolific, but I'm going to receive that and say thank you. (laughs) You know, it's like impossible to feel productive these days. But I guess it started for me, honestly, with reading. I feel like I. I was just a gigantic reader starting from an early age. And I was very much into Goosebump books. And I remember it's the R.L. Stein kind of series that it had its heyday in the 90s. And I would go to the B. Dalton bookstore, which was the name of the bookstore. And I think every month they released release the new one, and I'd be there like using my allowance to buy it. And I think I read like, every single book. And after a few, maybe a couple years of reading the books, I had this experience where I read one. I didn't like the ending. Hmm. And so I decided I would rewrite the ending myself. And that's my first memory of basically being like, oh, I could tell a story, or I could tell, I want to I see the story that I want to see, write the story that I want to see. How old were you then? And, God, I guess I want to say I was in second or third, maybe third or fourth grade. Wow. Because what happened soon after that is I would be, my mom was a working parent, and sometimes I would have to stay with her. She's a single mother as well, so sometimes I'd have to, hang out at her office on days when I didn't have (laughs) childcare and I would just be stuck in her office with a computer. And I just learned, I just one day opened up like a very crude kind of word processing platform and just started writing a story out of boredom while she was in a meeting. And then I remember being very fascinated (laughs) because I like printed it out and somehow she convinced, she told my teacher about it, a guy named Mr. Toe, who's now no longer with us. And I think one day he just ran out of things to teach. And so he told me to come up in front of the class and read my story out loud. And that was like my first taste of performance. Wow. <laughs> How did, was know, that for you? And I, was, I remember being super humiliated. It's about like detectives who happen to also be like martial arts experts. I mean, it's really bad stuff, but, but I think it was the first time I was ever singled out or I felt the act of writing singling me out in a way that was like, oh, this is me, and this is what I do, and no one else seems to do it in this room. And I think that was quite formative for me. And then when I actually began writing plays is a little hazier, but the first like official play I wrote, we had this like end of year recital to a very small elementary school called Roots Activity Learning Center in Washington D.C. And every year at the end of the year, we had the school wide recital, and every class kind of put on a performance. And somehow I convinced my best friend at the time was a guy named Chris Mickle. And I knew he wanted to be an actor and it's like, well, I'll write you a play. And I wrote this really bad, very long play about a detective named Johnny Sanchez. And that was performed at our like sixth or seventh grade recital. And I didn't think of it as writing a play or even playwriting, but I was like, this is something to do. That's my earliest origins. I think I've ever told those stories. That is so great. For the beginnings of me writing things, writing stories.
0: I actually also wrote a play, my first play in sixth grade and got my school to do it. It was called Wishes Do Come True, in which an actress (sighs) who looked a lot like me auditioned for a Broadway show and got the show and then got a Tony Award and had a whole speech and everything. So that was, you know, know, where you were obviously the star of the star vehicle. Yes, of course. So we share that. As well as yes, I think
1: there must be something <laughs> about that age. Yeah. There's something about the sixth grade year that is that somehow you understand the lure of the stage somehow.
0: Yeah, yeah, yep, that's great. Um, that's amazing. That's funny. I want to talk about a lot of things because you're working on several things right now. I know mm-hmm. you've been working on a new television series that you also created. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, it's technically an adaptation of a very famous book called *Kindred* by the late Octavia Butler. But yeah, I've been developing it for about six, seven years, which I can't believe wow. that. But, and we're finally, we're literally going to wrap shooting next week. So it's been an enormous j- journey. And is this your yeah.
0: first stint with uh, writing a, a television show?
1: No, I've actually done some quiet, secret television work over the last eight or so years in a way that honestly a lot of playwrights I know <laughs> That's how we survived my cohort, at least, since we weren't all going to Broadway. And I worked in the room for HBO's Watchmen, which I think most people kind of knew me for. I helped a friend of mine out with his show Out of Range, most recently for Amazon. So I've kind of dabbled. I've developed things that never went anywhere, but mostly just quiet struggles in the dark. (laughs) Um, I have to say, there was a period where I felt a little ashamed to talk about it because I just, all I want is... To be a playwright, but Broadway was not quite making ends meet mm-hmm. in the way that mm-hmm. I needed it to. Yeah. So And also the health insurance. That's what everyone does is for the course, health insurance. Of course, yes. You know? Yeah. So
0: are you the showrunner on your show here?
1: Yes, I'm the showrunner, executive producer, combo, slash writer, Big Kahuna.
0: So that's a lot. Which is a
1: totally new yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. It's like being Somehow, both the playwright and the artistic director of the theater. Wow! And it's it's a huge mental shift, I would say, from what I'm used to, which is, you know, through the amazing gift of the guild, owning my IP and having a lot of control oh, over right. it, but still, in some ways, being an independent contractor. Versus in this role, part of my creative responsibilities is ultimately hiring and managing this kind of amazing village of human beings who show up to put this behemoth of a show together. So it was a real level jump <laughs> yeah. uh, in terms of how I thought about what creative work would look like. And um, yeah, it's just been an, such an amazing learning experience, honestly. And it's actually made me really appreciate and value the theater more than I ever have because I, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone, ultimately. <laughs> There's so much to celebrate by what right. we do. And right. it really is just like the best.
0: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like
1: good theater is just the best yeah. I
0: think it's interesting that you bring up the whole idea of owning your intellectual property because I think that is one of the biggest differences besides the money writing a play on your own and being able to make all the decisions and nobody being able to change your words and
1: mm-hmm. even though
0: you're in charge you're still yeah. answering to a lot of people, right?
1: Yeah, I definitely work for Walt Disney. I know the buck does not stop with me and and in some ways, I think writing for television is like a very interesting art of compromise because you do have a vision for something that you want to try to maintain and get across. But in some ways, you're constantly like having to give a little to get a little in every way. And it just makes you think differently about the work you're doing. I keep saying to people, like, I've never wanted more than now to be making a play because there is something about that just like almost radical freedom that you get to feel in the theater that just, I don't think the television will ever honestly approach because it's too big of a commercial venture, I think.
0: Yeah. I want to get to your plays a little bit later, but I have a follow-up question. You're working on a TV show that is an adaptation. How have you gone about coming up with new ideas that are in line or in alignment with the source material? And what keeps you inspired to keep Mm. finding new things to say?
1: Mm. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that adaptation is something that I think I'm regarded for in the theater. It's It's been a part of my practice for a very long time, and I've given a lot of thought about it. I've taught classes on it. I've always felt that the theater at its heart, even historically, is an adaptive or an adaptational If you think about Shakespeare, he was synthesizing these source materials from like Italian folk tales and English histories or whatever, and kind of making his worlds out of that kind of raw material. So for whatever reason, theater has always felt to me like a thing that is always adapting something. And the kind of magic of what we do is in asking ourselves what adaptation is. And I would say that the approach I always have to adapting is to honor the working in the grain of the original, meaning like, you know, I think I can, go, I can literally teach whole class on this. You but should. First, yeah, <laughs> if you haven't. The first thing I would say too, is I always approach things as a fan. There's no point in adapting something that I don't want to see or spend time with. And that's really what keeps me going is oh, I just love this thing so much. It's like, I want to just unpack my love for it. I want to love it more. I want to understand it. In some ways, that's what love is ultimately. So that's what really keeps me going is like, an obsession almost with the thing I can't adapt just anything. I have to weirdly be like intrigued or challenged by it. And I would say too, that I think a mistake a lot of adaptations make is the writer presupposes a kind of superiority to the original maker or the text. And I think like part of the fun of adapting is to try to really think of this, dead person usually as a equal or a colleague and understanding why they made the choices they made in the context of so that they made them what they might have been trying to do that they could or couldn't do based on the social world that was there to greet them. And so for me, I feel like when I am trying to adapt something that's kind of beloved, I think to myself like, what do I think, like, I'll tell you about this book in, like, the 70s at a very different time, very different level of conversation and vocabulary around, like, a lot of the themes she's unpacking, which have to do with literally, like, family, race, identity, you know, all the stuff that now everyone writes about. And I had to ask myself, how can I find an echo or another iteration of those things in the present? That kind of is what ultimately guides some of my choices and adaptation. And then in terms of finding something new to say, it's, I, I have I've been teaching now for a while, and I feel like I constantly not constantly, it's not so much anymore, but I would have these students who would just feel like they had nothing to write about or that everything had been written about under the sun. And I have to remind them that every day is a new day. No one's written about today. So you should write about today and see where you are today and now. And it's always by definition going to be new because no one's seen this day. And I feel like that's kind of what I try to cultivate in myself is the sense of always just asking questions of the present and just noticing and thinking about how we got to where we got to now. That sort of winds up being the well I draw on again and again when I get stuck.
0: That is such great advice. What's interesting is that it seems like we started this conversation talking about goosebumps, which you were already adapting when you were in grade school. So you were preparing totally. for this moment.
1: That's true. <laughs> Back oh my then. Gosh. Yeah, yeah, that's hilarious. What's funny is I found out that R.L. Stein is a subscriber at the Signature Theater and that he has definitely seen my plays. Isn't that funny? Yeah, Someone confirmed that for me. Yeah, they were like, Arlstein saw this play this year. And I was like...
0: But you haven't met him yet. You haven't met him yet in person.
1: Ironically, this is another dumb story, but when I was 13 years old, my mother gave me this surprise where Arlstein was like speaking at some event space in um, Washington, D.C. And she got me tickets to it and I was blown away. That I was meeting a real life author who I admired. And as I was going into the auditorium to take my seat, this guy cuts in line in front of me just to go go in. It's Arl Stein. Oh. <laughs> I think he either stepped on my shoe or I stepped on his shoe. And I was just like, <laughs> it was definitely like touching the hymn of a saint or something for a 13 year old who was into like weird genre yeah, fiction. Anyway, right. yes, that's the only time I ever met the man. That's so
0: great. You know,
1: ships in the night.
0: Speaking of signature. You're going to have to fact check me on this that you have a premiere of a new play that you're also directing coming up there.
1: Yes, that is the intention. Yes, there's a play called Grass that I'm in the process of finishing, which was actually slated for the COVID season that was canceled. So I'm mm. one of the many strange casualties of that. And yeah, it's my final play in Residency 5 play right there. And the late, amazing Jim Houghton, who invited me into the program, I would say 2014, I want to say. It was kind of almost 10 years ago. And the game was, you get three premieres over five years, or however long it takes. And there's like a carte blanche element to it. It was an invitation to dream as big as possible as a writer. And I remember, even then I said, I want to direct my third play. And that was just always the plan. So that's what we're hoping to finally make good on this spring. It's very exciting. Yeah. I'm nervous, but, yeah, I feel like I've been in enough writer's rooms now. You know, honestly, like, also the showrunner thing has made me very fearless. Right, I'm in sure. All, in because there's just so many ways to be a director, to be a writer, to be a anything. You just kind of have to figure out your lane.
0: Have you directed your own work before, other than the TV stuff?
1: Not officially, no. I did a sort of a – I co-directed a – college production and i play everybody with someone many years ago i mean a lot of directors i work with have accused me of being a closeted director i'm very invested in things like design of my work and i have very specific ideas of performance and i just feel like i i came up doing community theater where sure there was like a named director but everyone was doing everything everyone was building the sets there's a dance captain, but also a choreographer. So I feel like my training <laughs> <laughs> has always been a little bit like, we're just all here to make a really good thing. You just kind of get in where you fit. And sometimes that means doing things that some directors might conservatively think of as only for them to do. Mm-hmm. But I don't know. I'm also just curious about taking that responsibility on myself and just t- trying to empathize in some ways with some of these amazing collaborators I've had over the years.
0: Yeah, yeah. I think that's so great and interesting to be able to get that
1: perspective.
0: And I feel listen. bad. Am I
1: supposed to ask you questions? No, Christine? no, this is, I,
0: <laughs> no, no. I'm interviewing you.
1: Oh, oh, because I was going to ask you if you've ever been interested in directing. I have
0: actually, and I've directed work, several yeah. of my own pieces and I, I quite enjoy it. I think because mm. I like the opportunity to be really clear about what I have envisioned. Exactly. To communicate yes. that with the yes. actors. Um, I'm not, I'm not yeah. as. I'm not as well versed in imagining the the visual elements, the scenic things, although I do tend to write mm. a lot of magical realism. So I, I envision visual things that have to mm. do with different worlds. But I'm not as good about uh, being able to talk to a designer about what what, uh, mm. you know, I would like to see that in that regard. But I really do enjoy mm. it. I really do enjoy it.
1: I always very fascinated by actor turn playwrights, mm-hmm. which I'm not one of them because i always feel like you guys have a very intuitive sense of what makes something pleasurable for an actor to do and i think that's so much the key that a lot of writers take forever to understand that ultimately a, a show is made or broken on the actor and if they're not been they've not been given like a vehicle in which to feel good you may not get that kind of magic you create. Like I was thinking about Stephen Adley Gerges' work. Like I'm obsessed. like he's, yeah. he's an amazing writer. And I always feel like he can build these kind of crazy ensemble shows. As he just knows what an actor likes to do. And, those, and when his plays work, they feel like infectiousness. Yeah. They feel like this like group dance. It's, Wow.
0: Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I honestly always approach building characters in the same approach. So I have had moments where I act everything out, of course, in my after I've written things. And I think, oh, I would be so mad at the playwright if I had to say this very long, convoluted sentence. Make it work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, it's
1: pretty
0: interesting. You did mention that you are still working on grass. Where yes. are you in the process of writing that? Play? Oh, God. I'll be honest,
1: I'm very superstitious, okay. so I don't talk okay. too much about it. I would say that I'm still finishing it, okay. but <laughs> it's been something that's been percolating for a very long time. I suspect it all. And I also, honestly, I'm as a writer, I also rewrite a ton in rehearsal, which can often drive a certain kind of actor crazy. Right. So uh, for me, things aren't really finished until I see the play uh-huh. that I'm thinking and writing. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you know? yes. Yeah. Um, like every every production I've ever walked into, the script has been in my spirit like a kind of draft of the event we're building and discovering in the process.
0: But that's exciting because you're collaborating with everyone in the room at the same time, then and yes, it's growing yes. in front
1: of your eyes. I and mean, I also just love. I've had it a few times. Like I love the experience of when I'm writing a character; it's sort of half there, and the actor who like locks in. Mm. And then I feel like I'm tailoring something to them. Mm-hmm. I like that feeling a lot. So I, I find that I kind of wait for that person to breathe breath into the character before it finally finds its finish. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And I just, that's just something that very, very much excites me about it, about, about the process. Like, I just love rehearsal. That's the other thing I realized with myself. I just, yes. like, love being in rehearsal.
0: I want to shift our conversation a little bit to your service at on the Council of the Guild. We, of course, became officers together during the shutdown in 2021. And I know that you first joined the council in 2016. And I wanted to ask you what inspired you to first run for council and what's it been like for you?
1: I was really inspired by, I think like most people, I didn't understand what the guild was and I didn't understand what council was. And then I had a very... Bad contractual crisis early in my career that was the product of a negligent agent, a pretty insidious theater, and I felt very helpless. And at the time, and still kind of now, Marcia Norman, the great Marcia Norman, was really a mentor to me at that time. And she was like, You need to bring this to the guild and you need to speak with Ralph Savish. And I had this, Ralph met with me in his office and talked me through what was going on and gave me very good advice for nothing. You know, and I was like, man, it's so crazy that we don't understand that the guild is that kind of place where we're supposed to come together and talk broadly and in confidence with each other about what's going on in the field. And anyway, so I joined the council because I felt like I got to figure out how to keep this kind of flame going. Mm -hmm. I can also feel that at the time, especially, because I think now the council is very different. There's all this like institutional knowledge that the generation before us has that no one was taking on, and I've always felt that I'm. I'm that's why I'm in academia. I just believe in like you know when you think about theater, it's this very old form of that we've been handing down to each other for like thousands of years, and I just felt like someone had to show up and try to hold that knowledge or hold that purpose or that mission, and that's why I did it. And. I didn't know what I was doing for a very long time on council. I knew that I knew the spirit that was compelling me was about trying to send out a beacon to young writers like me who were who found themselves in very bad situations professionally and didn't know how to get help. And also to find a way to gather the troops and root out those bad actors from the field as much as I could. But then in the process of being around, I saw where I was needed. I revived the awards committee, which had been defunct for years and wanted to take on not just the management and dispersal of the awards that the Guild oversees, which are quite substantial and for the most part geared towards supporting early, mid, and established writers and both in New York and not, I wanted to think and spend a lot of time meditating on and philosophizing about what it meant for writers to celebrate each other because there are just no other there's really no other place where playwrights are literally awarding other playwrights. I thought that was such a noble thing. But also I felt there was this interesting thing happening amongst my immediate cohort of New York playwrights, for the most part. I noticed so many of us were depending upon foundational support and grants which we were applying for and not applying for to subsist as writers. And no one was kind of talking through the tax implications of that, the financial implications of that. I just was suddenly like, wait, I think there's a self-education that needs to happen for a lot of writers around themselves as economic actors in the field. And, and the awards committee felt like the place to have those big conversations. And it wound up being quite true. <laughs> I, think it, I think it sparked conversations within the council based on the work that I was doing with my co-chair at the time, Joshua Harmon, that I think opened up a lot of conversations about mean, the meaningfulness of this money for young writers mm-hmm. in a way that sometimes the most successful amongst us don't understand how little the least successful of us live on, (laughs) you know, I just wanted to have a conversation about money. And that's how that kind of began. So that was the spirit of it. And I also really just fell in love with the staff of the guild, like Terry Stratton and Amy Masek and Emmanuel Wilson. And just, it just really inspired by these people who have decided to dedicate their lives to very specific artisans in this very specific field. And it's been really satisfying work so far, I would say. Yeah, And I would say that being an opposite, you and Amanda and Chris, was such a bright light during this pandemic because we really tried to like figure out what was going on and how to make sure when we step out of this moment, whenever we step out of it, playwrights are going to feel stronger and more clear about their purpose and their work and identities than ever.
0: Yes, very much so. I love that talking to various counselors this season about how they've been inspired to advocate for playwrights and it's really such a generous act and i really value i value all of it and all of the contributions that all of you have brought to the guild it's really been
1: and you too amazing. christine like this the talk back oh. is a huge new part of the guild and i think it's just Opening up the kind of windows and doors to people who thank you. I
0: love it. I love being able to give people like who is people have probably heard you talk a lot about your fabulous plays that have won all these awards. But who has heard until today about your adaptation of Goosebumps?
1: No, right? But yeah, you're like basically (laughs) Oprah or whatever. You just just got it out of me. Yeah, it's so funny. I remember when I moved to New York for the first time and I didn't know jack crap about anything, I Googled Playwrights New York blog, and there were three blogs.
0: Uh-huh.
1: And it was Jason Grote, uh-huh. Sheila Callahan, and Adam Zimkowitz. Those are the right. only three blogs wow. I could find. It was the only way I could get resources or understand anything about trying to be a playwright. And I'm just thinking now, like, it's so different. Yes. You come here and you want to understand the landscape or have be a part of this. It's just like such a great time. To be a young writer? I moved to, yeah, I moved to New York in 2006. And I went, I was actually doing a master's program at NYU in something called performance studies, writing quietly on the side. And I just, the only tickets I could really afford were off, off Broadway. Back then we had the Fringe Festival, if you recall that crazy moment. And if you wanted to be a theater maker, you just had to figure out where to go and hopefully hang around long enough, someone would be like, do you want to make something? but a few years into that was the phenomenon of the emerging writers groups. So oh, there was the public, the solar rep had their writer mm-hmm. director's lab and then New York, workshop had an emerging artists of color fellowship mm-hmm. at the time. And so the public had started this thing called the emerging writers group. And I was in the second class of that. So again, that was because the Ford foundation, time Warner, all these places were suddenly caring about supporting emerging playwrights. And so Suddenly, the industry was flush with funding to start these essentially scouting initiatives, and I'm getting into the public writing group and being like, "What is this? It's crazy!" They gave you headshots. You were talking to professionals. There was a real kind of pre-professional element to it. And at the end of that, they gave me my first production, which is a play called Neighbor and their public la- neighbors in the public lab. And but even then, I didn't have any mentors who were playwrights. I was working at the time for a theater critic. That was the one mentor I had, which was a little complicated, and. I just didn't know anything about anything. And then I applied to Juilliard because a friend of mine, her name was Jenny Neighbors, and we were both in the Ars Nova's play group. She was like, I think you should apply to Juilliard. So I was like, okay, I guess we'll just do it because I need health insurance. And, <laughs> and it was like a psychotic experience. But I getting like, A, applying, would be like getting in and just being very confused. I was like homeless. I was like, living on an air mattress basically in a random subled, like I got whooping cough like oh it was crazy it was a crazy set. so yeah so I literally just went to I literally applied to Juilliard because I was desperate I needed <laughs> health insurance and then um but then I wound up you know it was like so serendipitous because that place changed my life which had everything to do with Marsha Norman and Chris Durang, mm-hmm. who at the time were running it I never had again I never had playwright mentors you know And also Jim Houghton was running the drama program at the time. And he was just like such a visionary person. And I had never been embedded with actors in that way. So for the first time ever, I understood what an actor was and what actors do. Mm -hmm. And that really transformed the way that I wrote. So I think it didn't really give me like, it didn't give me a lay of the land. Like I didn't learn about the business actually from Juilliard. But I suddenly was developing these very crucial relationships, which I can't believe I got as far as I did without having them. I think any playwright now definitely needs to A, know actors, B, have a real mentorship or relationship to someone who's who can help answer those questions only someone with a bit of wisdom can. And also you just need like a tribe of people to be working with. That's just the three things, yeah. I think.
0: But also it seems to me one of the morals of the story is that you took a leap of faith back when you first applied for these fellowships that you didn't know about, and look where they were. No
1: idea. I often would think to myself, if I ran to my 20-year-old self, would he even believe what I had to tell him? Because I truly did, I had a premiere at the public theater you know, I was like 26, 27 wow, years old. Wow. Like I my first apartment was on Mott and Bleecker Street and I would walk by the public all the time and be like, oh, I can't wait to like be 40 and finally <laughs> maybe have a show here. <laughs> I just really did. I truly, and it's because you don't know what's happening. Right. It was like very radical to meet other young playwrights in the city because again, you weren't. There was no way to meet each other because no one was getting produced. I had a lot of friends who wanted to be novelists or, like, poets. But I just really didn't know any playwrights because in some ways I think you still live with the shame of being, like, a theater kid, right, in high school. But also, like, how do you show your work or share your work as a playwright? So I was in this, like, pretty wonderful class at, of ours, and other people, included, like, Annie Baker, who I've, she and I have been teaching together for almost a decade now, dear friend Amy Herzog, Sam Hunter, like... We were all just kids who were curious about this thing and it felt like a hobby, like a very expensive hobby, but somehow there was something really powerful in meeting someone who was interested in the thing that made you so singular in your own life. So does that make sense? I think that's so
0: incredible. Also the idea that you were able to meet and surround yourself with people who believed in, Illuminating your voice, not, like you say, ma- what makes you singular, not trying to change you into whatever they thought you should be or what people in the commercial world might want. Can you talk yeah. about that a little bit if you've ever had any pushback f- for what you want to say? Because I know your, your your reputation is really writing plays that are very forthright and unapologetic yeah. in their sometimes controversial It's so funny. Games.
1: I don't know. It's it's a good question. Because I just, you believe in what you're doing and you just back it up and you just keep doing it. That's all you have to right. do. And so there, was, so there is that. And I still get pushback all the time. Like I still expect pushback. But I also had this, I remember I had my first really negative review and I got to have lunch with a playwright named Mark Ravenhill, who I really love. And he was a part of this kind of in-your-face generation of playwrights in the British world. I met him for a random coffee or something because his agent put us in touch or I don't remember why we even got together. And I was licking my wounds and he was just like, listen, this is dumb. He's like, you need to just, he was like, you're trying to do something that's different or new. And in some ways you're critiquing something that this, these reviewers are responsible for the upholding of. So you should feel weird if they do love what you do. Interesting. It was interesting. Yeah. He was like, if your mission here is to actually talk about things that are difficult to talk about, don't expect people to praise you for it because difficulty is not a positive feeling. Mm. And that really changed my sense of strength about just doing what I want to (laughs) do and living with the fact that sometimes you're just going to, it's going to miss the mark. Sometimes it's going to fail, but you have to have faith in whatever your mission or your drive is. You have to work hard to have that faith because you have to really stand by what you're trying to do. And I think that's how I've managed to stick around and not go crazy.
0: Um, thank you so much for all of your insight and great stories. It's always such a joy to get to talk to you because we haven't seen each other in person and years i know
1: <laughs> and i'm just so happy to finally be on this podcast yes. which i love yes thank so you I, for I mean, joining I skip us skip this episode obviously i'm not gonna listen to myself talk but <laughs> i'm just so honored to be included in this gallery of amazing talks with you
0: thank you my thanks to brandon to hear all our episodes you can find us on the broadway podcast network or apple podcasts please be sure to rate us and leave a review Learn more about our guests from all our episodes by visiting www.dramatistsguild.com. This episode was produced by Amy von Mesick and me, Christine Toy Johnson. Music was composed by Andrea Daly. Special thanks to Dick and Roger Sound Studio in Vancouver, British Columbia. Talkback is a production of the Dramatists Guild of America and is distributed by the Broadway Podcast Network. Join the conversation online by using hashtag DGTalkBack. As always, to be continued. Have you ever wondered how your favorite performer actually feels? Well, here's your chance. Welcome to The Quiet Part Out Loud, with me, Bobby Steggert, Broadway actor, and now a therapist to a whole host of Broadway creatives. Part interview, part therapy, this is not your typical podcast will go right to the heart of things with some of your favorite artists. What they still struggle with, what lessons they've learned, what they haven't figured out yet. There's enormous power in saying the
1: quiet part out loud. Are you listening?